Well, in high school, I was a really social kid. So between uh, playing a sport every season of the year and then hanging out with my uh, friends or teammates when I wasn't at practice or a game, I was gone from home a lot, out of the influence of my parents. And so more times than I can count uh, before I went to hang out with my friends, my dad would ask me a question. The question he would ask is this, who are you going to be? Who are you going to be? He would ask and ask and ask and ask. And being the type of teenager that I was, I would roll my eyes in exasperation and say, me, me, I'm going to be me. And then I would go on my way. It took me a long time to understand why my dad kept asking me that question. But as I look back and I think about raising kids of my own, I understand now that he knew the temptation for a 17-year-old to conform to what his peers were doing was going to be great. I'm sure that simple question, who are you going to be, kept me out of more trouble than I even realize. This morning, as we continue on in the book of Colossians, Paul is going to urge us in the same direction. The rest of the book of Colossians, and certainly our text this morning, can really be summed up in that question. Who are you going to be? Who are you going to be? Paul's exhortation then, as he seeks to answer that, is twofold. Be who you are, or the complimentary statement, don't be who you're not. Don't be who you're not. We're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11 this morning. So if you'd like to open there, if you have a Bible in front of you. Otherwise, if you want to open that Church Center app that Pastor Dan mentioned, you can get uh, sermon notes in there if you touch the sermon notes button and open those up. And uh, as always, I'll assume that you're not scrolling Facebook, uh, instead that you're following along with the message. So as you're turning there to Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11, uh, I just want to start this message uh, with a fair warning, uh, as Pastor Jordan did last week. This is a heavy text, and as a result, uh, it's a fairly heavy message. In these verses that we're about to look at, Paul gets after some pretty serious sin issues. He confronts some patterns in the Colossian church uh, that are all too relevant for us today. So, Uh, You may feel the sting of confrontation or even of conviction. You might get mad at me uh, and not like what's preached this morning or how you hear it. But let me assure you, that's okay. Uh, I can handle that. Um, And these words of Scripture are super important for us to hear this morning. So, that warning being given, uh, let's dive in by looking at verses 1 to 4. Paul writes this. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Seek the things above, Paul says. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above, where Christ is, where he is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. In other words, be who you are in Christ. Don't be who you're not 
in the world. Be who you are. Don't be who you're not. So the question then is, who are you? Who are you? Well, according to these four verses, you are at least three things. Verse 1, you are raised with Christ. You are raised with Christ. You are no longer dead, but Christ has made you alive. When he rose again on the third day in glory and he defeated death and sin, he set you free. He set you free. But more than just freedom, Christ made you alive. You were dead, but you have been raised with Christ. Second, in verse 3, you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You died, this text says. You died. That's, that's a pretty striking statement, right? If you've ever walked through the death of someone or something that you love, you know that there's a finality that comes with death, unlike anything else we experience on this earth. When we confessed Jesus as Lord, Paul says that we died to our old ways of life, We died to them, and now our life is hidden with Christ in God. Galatians uh, says it this way. He says, it says, it is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. We died to our old way of life, and Christ lives in us, and we are alive in Jesus. And so it's absurd for us to continue to go back and embrace our old dead selves and desires. Number three. According to verse 4, you are going to appear with Christ in glory. So who are you? You are raised with Christ. You died and your life is hidden with Christ. And now you are going to appear with Christ in glory. We have a future hope. See, the good news of the gospel isn't just that Jesus died a long time ago and he forgave your sins. That, that's not just, that's not the only good news of the gospel. Yeah, that's part of it, but the good news of the gospel is that Jesus died and paid for your sins and he gave you new life, and now we have a future hope. A hope that when Jesus returns and displays his plot power and majesty and he finally, fully brings his kingdom here, Paul says that we who are in Christ will appear with him in glory. There's an eternal reward awaiting us that is beyond anything we can understand. You will appear with Christ in glory. Paul makes it abundantly clear here in these three things that the motivation for seeking things above, for being who we are and not who we're not, is not to earn salvation. It's not. It's not to be legalistic and try to earn God's favor, right? Paul assumes salvation. He assumes that we've been raised with Christ, that our life is hidden in Christ, and that we will appear one day with him in glory. He assumes salvation. He says, if you have been raised, then seek the things above. Motivation matters as we look at this text this morning. We, as believers, are motivated by what Christ accomplished on our behalf on the cross and by the life that he's given, not by an attempt to earn salvation. Jesus already accomplished that. Paul says, here's who you are in Christ. You're raised, you're hidden, you will appear in glory. Therefore, because of the good news of the gospel, therefore, verse 5 says, don't be who you're not. Don't be who you're not. In these next six verses, we're going to see three sin areas that we as Christians are called out of 
as we set our minds on things above. First, Paul addresses sexual sin. Let's look at verses 5 through 7 of Colossians chapter 3. Therefore, he says, therefore, in light of the gospel, in light of what Jesus has done, in light of your new life, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient, and you once walked in these things when you were living in them. Therefore, Paul says, put to death what belongs to to your earthly nature. Kill it. Kill what belongs to your earthly nature. We live in a culture that screams the opposite of this, don't we? Our culture screams the opposite of this. Sexual immorality, that Greek word porneia, where we get our English word for pornography, is sort of a catch-all word for sexual immorality. Impurity, Paul says, passions, that passions word is the same word that Paul uses in Romans chapter 1 as he describes uh, the, the unnatural desires of homosexual behavior. Evil desire, greed, especially greed for another person. Each of these are not just accepted, but celebrated in our culture, right? The world around us pushes limits and boundaries, and it leaks into the church. Instead of striving for purity, the world encourages us with questions like, how sexually free can I be? Who can I sleep with? Or better yet, who can't I sleep with? How many can I sleep with? How far can we push the limits of media? How mainstream can we make the use of pornography? How can we take what was once considered dirty and harmful and consumable only behind closed doors with shame? How can we take that and doll it up and make it seem helpful and beneficial? We call these deep-rooted sins an expression of our freedom to do what we want, when we want, with whoever we want. Men and women, adults and children, every demographic is hit by this. The reach of sexual sin and the problems of an over-sexualized culture are deep and wide. We are so much closer to the first century context that Paul is writing into than we'd care to admit. Our desires are evil, right? We breathe life into what we should put to death. In our efforts to accommodate and to make each other comfortable, we overlook deep, rampant sin that Paul says brings about God's wrath. Church, you have been raised with Christ. You died to your sin and you are alive in him. Stop playing around in the sandbox of death. Christ was crucified on your behalf. When you and I engage in sexual sin by clicking on images that we shouldn't and by participating in sexual activity outside of marriage and by looking lustfully after a man or a woman who is not our spouse, when we lie to ourselves and greedily say, well, I deserve this because I'm not married or because my spouse isn't meeting my need or God wouldn't have given me or him or her that desire if he didn't intend it, if it wasn't good and right— When we do those things, we are walking a dangerous line. Not because our salvation is any less secure. It's not. Scripture is abundantly clear that Christ paid the penalty for all of our sins, past, present, and future, when he bled on that cross. 
we're walking a dangerous line because Paul says that the wrath of God comes upon the disobedient because of these things. Because of these things, God's wrath comes on the disobedient. We are secure in Christ. Be sure of that. But I think if Paul were standing here today, he'd ask this question. Were you raised with Christ or weren't you? Were you raised with Christ or weren't you? Did he bear the wrath of God on your behalf or didn't he? If he did, if he did, if Jesus Christ hung on that cross for your sin and shed his blood for you and took the wrath of God on his body, then friends, we have got to stop spitting in his face and playing with sexual sin. Yeah, it's difficult, right? I'm not going to gloss over that. It's difficult. We're tempted from every angle. Men and women are fed images and thoughts and lies day in and day out that fuel sinful desire. We live in a time where uh, it's, probably more, it's probably more easily accessible than at any point in history to act on fleeting thoughts and urges. But here's the thing. You died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. By the power that is in you, by the power that raised you from death to life that brought Jesus out of that grave, you can do it. You can overcome it. You can fight against sexual sin. You can be transformed. You can put off the old and set your mind on things above. This isn't just a man's issue. Men and women, students, Children, We have to stop believing the lies from the pits of hell that tell us that a biblical sexual ethic is restrictive and harmful and not what we were created for. Stop believing the lie that pornography is a harmless vice. It's not. That's a lie. Put to death what belongs to your earthly nature and set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He has conquered. And by his power, he can transform this area of your life. Paul next goes after relational sin in verse 8. Let's look there together. He writes this, but now put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Paul calls us as Christians to put aside all attitudes and actions that break down relationships. He lists three internal and two external sins that show us the need for complete surrender inside and out of all things related to relationships. Put away all these things, he says. He specifically goes after the attitudes of anger, wrath, and malice. Attitudes that have a tendency to build upon one another. Think of the last time that someone did something uh, bad to you, that someone wronged you in some way. Someone talked about you behind your back, or they said something mean to your face, or they didn't live up to an expectation that you had for them. Or, perhaps, the sin of all sins, they cut you off on the highway. It's the worst one, right? Well, what's our response when something happens like that? Well, it it tends to start small, right? There's anger. We get angry in our heart, just a little bit maybe, but we can feel that anger. But if we don't kill it right away, it grows, right? We let that thought enter our mind. Who do they think they are anyway? 
Pretty soon, it's not just sinful anger, but it moves towards wrath. We don't just feel angry that something happened. Now we want them to pay. We're not sure how yet, but we know that they deserve for something bad to happen to them. After all, they hurt me. They hurt me. They deserve to feel the sting of being hurt. And then it progresses, right? Anger to wrath to malice. I once read a book on marriage, uh, and the wife shared a story of riding along with her husband uh, one day, headed somewhere, and it was probably church, because that's where all of these uh, stories happen, all these fun experiences. So everything is going well, and her husband is cruising along, happy as can be, and suddenly someone cuts him off. Now, what happened? The guy went from calm, cruising, happy with this sunny day, to rage monster in about 0.2 seconds, right? I'm sure that nobody here in this room or watching online has ever experienced something like this, so I'm probably the only one that's ever reacted like this, but, but what does the guy do? What happens when someone cuts you off in traffic and you get angry? We're going to show them by tailgating, right? So this guy speeds up and he's riding right on the bumper of the guy in front of him and his wife uh, is, is sitting next to him and she's like, my husband is going crazy here. Like, he's thinking this is going to show this guy. It's not. So what do I do? How am I going to help him as he just jumped over anger and wrath and went straight to malice? So she, she turns to her husband and she says, all right, honey, look, here's what we got to do. You got to get up next to this guy and you got to angle him off and push him into the ditch. When we do that, you get out I'll hop out and grab the tire iron and we can beat him with it, right? So the husband looks at his wife and immediately bursts out laughing. And it's a funny story, right? But there's a little bit of truth in how we react in these situations. We so quickly get caught up in the payback mentality that we can get in way over our heads before we even realize what's happening. Jeremiah 17.9 says this, The heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? Our hearts are prone to bad attitudes. We're encouraged in this direction by worldly thinking. It's not easy to lay down our desires, our rights, or our preferences, right? It's not easy to give up anger and instead have compassion to pray the best for someone who is really hurt us instead of wishing that they'd get what's coming to them. But it's what we've got to do. It's what we're called to as Christians by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. We have to let him soften our hearts of stone and make them into flesh, to conform them to the patterns and desires of Jesus Christ, not of anger and wrath and malice. When these attitudes creep in, they will obliterate every relationship in our lives. Relationships with our spouses, our kids, our neighbors, our teachers, our friends, our co-workers. We cannot keep giving our hearts over to sinful attitudes. But, Paul says, we can't just stop with our attitudes. It can't just end there. Our actions have to follow. Specifically, he talks about the way we speak to one another. Slander and filthy language. Slander and filthy language. Such minor sins that many Christians wouldn't even bat an eye at their brother or sister committing them, right? In our desire to make the church a welcoming place and to not offend one another and make sure that we all fit in, we often don't really care about how we talk, do we? 
Well, we say things like, ah, oh, they're, they're working on it, right? At, at least they're not cheating on their spouse. At least they showed up and they're here. At least, insert worst sin, worst sin here, right? A few curses here or there are really no big deal. An innuendo, a slightly off-color joke, it's fine. It, it might even be funny. We might even be laughing, right? A rude comment to my husband or my wife. They know I'm kidding, after all, so I can say what I want. It's, it's not a big deal what comes out of my mouth. A quick slant about a coworker behind their back. Don't, don't worry about it, right? Everyone in the office already knows, and it was a joke, but, but also everybody knows it's, it's really, it's kind of true, so it's okay if I say it. Or how about this one? I'm not trying to be mean, but it's true. And if they were here, I'd say it to their face. Right? If we would say it to their face, we, we would be on the phone with them saying it to their face. We wouldn't. Church, how you talk really matters. How you talk really matters. When you or I let filthy talk come from our mouths, we've sinned. And we're just as guilty as when we commit sexual sin. Jesus shed his blood because of that F-bomb. Because of that funny joke, because of that unkind but true remark you made about your coworker or your friend so you could feel better about yourself. I need to hear this as much as you. I assure you of that. So to myself and to you, if you're still listening, stop swearing. It's not okay just because it's an old habit from when before you were a believer. Verse 7, Paul says, you once walked in these things when you were living in them. But now, put them away. Put them to death. Stop telling off-color jokes and making rude remarks, even if you have to do it to fit in. Jesus is better than fitting in. Stop slandering people. Stop talking about people behind their back in unkind ways. It doesn't matter if it's kind of true or not. Just stop doing it. Let Jesus do a work in your heart and change your attitudes and your actions in these areas. You have died, Paul says, and your life is hidden with him. If he can be raised from the dead, if he can overcome the grave and defeat death and sin, he can work in you and change your behavior. Just let him. Just let him. So we have to let our attitudes and our words carry the aroma of heaven, not of earth of heaven where Jesus reigns. Sexual sin, relational sin, and finally, lying. Let's look at verses 9 through 11. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. In Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Do not lie to one another. What's the lie that Paul is attacking here? Well, I think it's probably twofold. First, lying in general. Stop. Don't lie to each other. If it's a big lie or a small lie or a white lie that you think doesn't affect anything or anyone, Paul says stop. As Christians being renewed in knowledge according to the image of our Creator, we are called to be people of truth. So be truthful. Don't lie to one another. 
More specifically, I think Paul is getting after a lie that existed at the time uh, that certain cultural barriers could or should divide followers of Jesus. Paul says, not only are sinful habits, attitudes, and behaviors to be put to death, so are barriers that we put in place to divide human beings from one another. Racial, ethnic, cultural, social, political barriers. We're not so far removed from the first century, are we? We have lists of barriers that we could all very easily name right now. Theologian F.F. Bruce says it this way, Where cultural differences exist, the gospel ignores them. Where cultural differences exist, the gospel ignores them. See, the enemy would love to see us divided. He'd love to broadly see the church across the globe divided over differences in politics, in worship style, in race, in income, in levels or income levels and in the ways that we dress when we attend church services. More narrowly, he'd love to see your heart and my heart divided inside each one of us. He'd love to see you judge your brother or your sister because they voted for a candidate that you didn't. He'd love, <clears throat> he'd love to see you think that so-and-so isn't as strong of a Christian as you because they wear a mask and you feel differently about that. He'd love to see your heart believe the lie that your skin color is better, smarter, more receptive to the gospel, more sanctified, or more glorified than another. The lie that your culture is less in need of missions and someone bringing gospel truth than another. After all, aren't we as the predominantly white American church, the ones who send missionaries across the globe? What would we possibly have to learn from another culture, from someone like that. Friends, we are united by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, who does not discriminate for age, gender, color, culture, sin issue, or background. We all stand guilty at the foot of the cross, and we come in desperate, desperate need of forgiveness and salvation. The gospel ignores every kind of barrier that we put in place. We are all rendered helpless at the foot of the cross. This is a heavy, convicting text, right? And while I want you to feel the weight of that, I want to let the Spirit convict and prune you as He sees fit, I also want to, you to remind you of the unbelievable grace that's been poured out by God the Father in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to remember that together uh, by taking communion. Uh, and as we approach the table, we have just three simple instructions. First, we practice what's called open communion. All that means is you don't need to be a member of Crossview Church. You just need to be a member of the body of Christ, having confessed him Lord of your life. Second, parents, we recognize you as spiritual leaders. So if you're here, or if you're at home, uh, and you feel that your child has uh, made that profession of faith and is following after Jesus, you're welcome to serve communion to them. And finally, we'll take the elements together in just a moment. Sin is bad. It's bad. And it's pervasive. And we can and we should fight against it. But no matter how hard we fight, it's still there, isn't it? Lurking, causing us to fall, making us feel guilty, like we're not good enough. But in his great mercy, 
In his great love, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for every single sin we commit. Every sexual sin, every relational sin, every lie. Every single thing that God says do and we don't, or God says don't do and we do. Jesus went to the cross and he died to bear the wrath of God so that we would experience freedom and life. The elements before us serve as reminders of what he did. The bread, his body, just like ours, a physical body hung on that cross and was broken for our transgressions. His blood spilled out on the ground as onlookers cheered. His blood established a new covenant, a promise that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. What a glorious hope we have in Jesus. So friends, let's remember what Jesus has done, the freedom and life that he brought on our behalf as we approach the table together. So first, the bread. Scripture says, On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And now the cup. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper and said, This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Would you pray with me? Father, we humbly approach the foot of the cross once again. We confess that we are broken and sinful beyond even our wildest imaginations. Like the nation of Israel, we are adulterous and unfaithful to you. And yet, you remain. You love. You pursue. We praise you for the reminder of what you did for us on the cross, for the glorious hope you've provided in the gospel. Jesus, we need your help in this struggle. I pray that as we fight against sin in our lives, that you would do a good work in us, that by the power of your spirit, you would continue to transform us and conform us into your likeness. Now, Lord, receive these words of praise as we worship you together. We love you. We worship you. We trust you. And we're so grateful that while our sins are many, your mercy is more. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.